accessing agent files. Brian Sovereign. Early 21st Century Anarchist. Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government, helping usher in an incredible time. Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got... The Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, the Libertine in Chief, here for another little episode of Sovereign Tech. That's right, the only tech show that calls it straight and takes it to the state, baby. You got it. Dr. Brian Sovereign here, ready for a good time, because we've got a lot to talk about this week, as always. Uh, and boy, let's break right into it there, but I hope you enjoyed a little uh, little kiss right there. But <laughs> Let's do it. Bezos in space, and if you can't tell... Uh, I am on location, and I am using uh, a new headset, so the audio quality might not be the the usual up to snuff, but uh, but here it is. Always, every Saturday, you get a Sovereign Tech. Let's do it. So like I said, Jeff Bezos in space. Well, I don't know if he's actually going to be going into space, but he his company, uh, Blue Earth, right? They are going they are planning on starting to launch rockets, space vehicles what have you, uh, by the end of the year, or at least early 2016. Uh, now, this is pretty interesting. I don't know if this has anything to do with Amazon wanting to deliver to Martians or not, but <laughs> he would appear to be well ahead of the game. Or maybe he's delivering to people on Ceres. Done. <laughs> uh, but kudos. I actually, you know, as much as I despise Amazon and some other big companies, because I'm also really not a fan of Elon Musk, uh, but, you know, I'm glad that 
there is stri- there are strides being made in the private space industry to stop relying upon NASA and other government organizations. Even though I recognize one could make the case that since we really exist in a system of corporatism, where it is not just uh, you know it's not just government, but we have governments and corporations in cahoots working together, that maybe is this a little different. Then NASA doing, you know, doing things, is this just, you know, an outcropping of corporatism? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, That's certainly something to consider. But either way, let's have that advancement. Um, You know, maybe, maybe something will happen where they need to open source some of these space patents, kind of like Elon Musk did with, uh, you know, with his vehicles, with the Tesla cars. Uh, Of course, the opening sourcing of patents wasn't any kind of liberty-minded move on, on his part. It all had to do with uh, giving people the freedom to build an infrastructure uh, so that he can make a shit ton more money. Okay, But it, is, it has nothing to do with, oh, I believe in open source patents. Uh, maybe with a lot of the space stuff, similar would ha- like with, you know, with what Blue Earth's doing uh, or what SpaceX is doing, maybe the same thing uh, would have to be done to where, to where they need to open source a lot of, the, a lot of this technology. So that could be a byproduct that's a good thing. Um, but I, either way, I'm always happy to see developments in the uh, space realm, uh, you know, space world. We, we can't really call it like the tech world. We can't really call it the space world, but whatever. Uh, there it is. Talking about other, uh, some other of the big, biggest companies on the planet. Uh, and yes, Yahoo still is. <laughs> but Yahoo and Microsoft have re-upped their, uh, their contract, their deal that they had. Uh, because a few years ago, Yahoo and Microsoft had made this deal that, okay, Yahoo would use Bing. Of course, they tailor Bing some, to some degree uh, for their own purposes. But that they would, uh, you know, and then a few years down the line, they would kind of look over the contract again and and possibly, you know, there was a lot of people thinking that, because we knew this was coming up, for, you know, within a few months of it, and uh, people were saying that maybe Yahoo would just completely go away from using Bing at all and maybe have their own search engine. Maybe that's something that, uh, that Marissa Meyer, since she took over, had waiting in the wings, is that she was going to allow for, uh, you know, to have Yahoo kind of come back to prominence in that way. But apparently it is not so. Yahoo is still using Bing uh, as its as its back end. Uh, there are some changes being made here and there. Uh, of course, Yahoo is a company that's really, you know, uh, it's really in a moment of transition. Of course, if it isn't in a moment of transition, it's a company that's going to likely die. Uh, but Yahoo's doing a lot of interesting things. They are really creating, they have a, a chance to, you know, they could really do what Google's doing right now. And it wasn't until, you know, I got to admit, okay, with um, with Yahoo, I have to admit that, like Google, nobody saw the total picture with what Google had in mind with creating this entire ecosystem that they had. They had all these disparate products that didn't seem related, and then suddenly one day it just all came together for everybody, and a lot of people in the tech world, myself included, suddenly realized, holy shit, look at what they're doing. You know, And Yahoo could very much do the same, and I, I think that's, that's something that, that's still up and coming to where you know, they are, I mean, they've tried it before, but like we mentioned last week, we talked about the very important topic that a lot of technology is cyclical. And now people are taking to the idea of having, you know, company ecosystems 
you know, consumers are used to one, you know, single company ecosystems of dealing with it. And so I think Yahoo might bring that on, uh, you know, and, and now the world seems to be ready for it. Uh, and maybe Microsoft will be a part of that. Maybe Yahoo will use Microsoft as their backend. So the re-up was, you know, it, it kind of favored Yahoo a little bit more as to where before it was certainly favoring Microsoft. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, just an interesting development. Not a whole lot to, to say on that other than, you know, Yahoo is still out there and happening. Uh, it's becoming a leaner company and, you know, which unfortunately means a lot of layoffs, but Microsoft is doing the same thing as well. So there, there are two companies that really seem to be, and that maybe this is the interesting point, is that both of these companies, Yahoo and Microsoft, uh, are very different companies now from what they've been in the past uh, or from what they've been trying in the past decade. And But it looks like what they've got going on, you know, their leaner, meaner attitudes uh, might bring them well back into prominence. I am totally open to the idea that Yahoo could, you know, best Google at some point in the future. No, really, I mean that. Uh, so anyway, so, you know, a couple interesting points I'm going to bring up during the random access here. Uh, one is, is that I learned an interesting fact today or in the past week, and that was that most of the great coders. Now, this research is kind of uh, uh, self uh, self or self-reported is what they call it. Uh, but most coders, the best coders in the world are not in Silicon Valley. Now, this is important. This this uh, uh, statistic okay, is if it's based upon city, then yes, San Francisco, New York City, and London are all kind of neck and neck with Silicon Valley definitely taking, or, you know, San Francisco definitely taking the lead with having, you know, per capita, the most, uh, uh, you know, high talent coders, okay? Um, but, well, I guess just really the most coders in general. But if you go by country, it is not the U.S., in fact, again, we're, we're, we're not by city, but by country. And by country per capita, the U.S. isn't even in the top 10 of having, you know, the, the, the high talent and, and just coders in general in the world. In fact, the number one is New Zealand. I was shocked. I'll admit it. New Zealand and Sweden, I think, were, were at the top of the list. So, But that's amazing that the best coders in the world don't even, you know, per capita by country, okay, and of course, again, I recognize this is self-reported, but it's important. Do not live in the United States. The United States is behind the times. Silicon Valley, in general, I mean, like Silicon Valley is like the whole gag. I mean, that's the whole thing. Now, again, like I said, if you go by city, then yes, Silicon Valley has the most high-talent coders. Okay, but if you go by country, per capita, they are way behind the times. You know, the whole United States, I thought that was a really, really interesting statistic uh, to discover. So, uh, and you can, of course, uh, duck it, as in duck, duck, go, and you can duck it and look uh, look up more about that. So, but maybe that, you know, maybe that's just another sign. I talk about this all the time, how Silicon Valley, I think, is in a bubble, and it's on its way out and down. Uh, I mean, this is, I think Silicon Valley is the new Detroit, and these statistics would seem to back that up, in my opinion. Um Boy, a little little blockchain news, uh, and we're we're actually going to maybe do a little bit a little bit of Bitcoin and blockchain news here uh, for our main story. But Ripple, uh, Ripple is kind of the blockchain technology that most people just never seemed to understand. It was a very exciting thing. I remember uh, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I. Uh, we went to uh, San Jose. 
for the first, the very first Bitcoin Foundation, <laughs> Bitcoin Foundation uh, uh, conference that they held, and I think this is in 2013 or whatever. And uh, Ripple was kind of like stole the show there. And then there, you know, there's been a, a lot of drama back and forth with with Ripple, and Ripple is kind of like this. I don't know, it, it's it's best to look into it because it is a really complex idea. But the bottom line is is that Ripple is a is to some degree a Bitcoin competitor. Some would say it's not because Bitcoin can work with it, but whatever. Uh, but they are now requiring for their new compliance network, they are requiring verified user IDs. And I mean, this is as ugly uh, as it gets because first off, Ripple Labs, which runs Ripple, is of course a centralized uh, affair, and they have total control. And now, I mean, they're wanting you know the whole thing like they're they're wanting you to have uh perhaps you know passports driver's licenses whatever they want verified ids now i've talked about many times how verified ids in a blockchain system or in any centralized system or perhaps even in any system and maybe we'll talk about this during uh during important messages uh is a bad idea you can go back to episodes i have the tyranny of identity the tyranny of reputation if you want to find out more about my thoughts on that those are episodes you can find at sovereigntech.ninja okay and uh you know just go to the website and there you go you, you can check it out um, so yeah, Ripple, uh, loser. <laughs> that just that sucks uh, to to have that. So certainly not that they ever really promoted themselves as being any kind of like privacy service by any means. As where certainly Bitcoin was pushing, you know, a degree of anonymity and privacy and whatever. Ripple, I don't recall if they ever actually said that, though I could be wrong about that fact. Um, but just another reason to stay away from you know this sort of thing and things. And their moves are ones to look out for to see if any Bitcoin company or any other crypto cryptocurrency or crypto company does if they do anything of the sort uh you want to stay away so uh you know we, we're get, we're in on this early and we can see the mistakes being made and in my opinion ripple requiring verified id is an absolute uh mistake so speaking of other mistakes from uh from actually a bitcoin company though broker uh broker is shutting down and now the only reason i'm bringing this up so for those that don't know what broker is broker is actually a company that allowed you to use your there's another one that's actually very successful nice guys running it called purse.io they're doing very well for themselves uh broker was a competition to purse.io and what it did is it allowed you to order things on amazon with bitcoin and uh and and then you know someone or like then someone would pay the cash for it uh you know to get it and then they would take your bitcoin Okay, so it's kind of an ex a big, you know, it's a Bitcoin exchange, but it wasn't exchanging for dollars. It was kind of exchanging for products from Amazon, and maybe it worked with some other sites. But I know it at least worked with Amazon. And the the interesting thing here is, okay, is the fact after one year they are shutting down. Uh, like I say, Purse.io is doing fine now. I don't. I have a hard time believing that somehow people just all ran and used Purse.io, even though I think Purse.io has some uh, integration with Coinbase in the past couple months. I think what really happened here is it's it's proving my point, which I've also talked about uh, in many past episodes about Bitcoin. Um, it proves the point that you know maybe the whole reason Broker shut down because there's no reason you can't have competition in these spaces. I think it's you know it, it is what it is. It's fine thing and you know let it happen okay i think the reason that it shut down is hey they didn't they didn't do any real advertising none 
I mean, they didn't do shit for advertising. And I think it, it just proves the point that a lot of these startups, a lot of these Bitcoin companies are just going to keep falling like flies because they're not serious. They, you know, they're just looking to grab some kind of VC money. I can't imagine how much Brocker got. Okay. And they're not really wanting to be a company to last in the first place. Because if they were, you know, then they would have done real advertising on television, on podcasts, on radio, on, you know, you take your pick. That's where they would have put some money, okay? And so, in my opinion, any company that do, that is not willing to do that sort of thing, I would consider suspect as far as putting any kind of, you know, faith, quote-unquote, or reliance upon that company. If they're not willing to hash out advertising dollars, in our modern day, that is a real sign. Okay, unless they're running off of some different economic model, which Brocker was not, okay, uh, that is a real sign of a company that doesn't take itself seriously. And this is rampant through the Bitcoin space and through the crypto space. Uh, you know, these people will not do traditional advertising. And if their point, you got to keep this in mind, if their taglines, if their ethos, if, you know, if everything that they're trying to push out there is that we're trying to make things simpler for people to be able to buy things, we're trying to appease grandma, we're trying to do all this bullshit, okay? And they're not actually using avenues that reach out to the everyday person, Okay, because listen, outside of Silicon Valley, this is a fact. You want some more statistics? Outside of Silicon Valley, the most list, the most consumed medium is radio. Silicon Valley exists in this bubble, and it doesn't think that it's. It doesn't think that that exists. It doesn't even think like television exists. Everybody's a cord cutter. No, most people aren't cord cutters, and most people, uh, you know, they, they still list, They they hop in their car and they turn on the radio. That's what the average person does, and so I mean. So here's the thing, either Brocker was just wanting to, uh, you know, appeal to uh, some, you know, to a very limited audience, which goes against their own statements, uh, you know, or they never planned on being serious in the first place, or they were ran uh, by a bunch of dolts. You take your pick of which one that is, okay? But keep that in mind. If a company, I don't care what, what part they're, you know, unless they are tr literally shooting for some kind of different economic model, Okay. You know, they're trying to create like a literal new market of some kind. Uh, and even then, I still think it's a good idea to do very, you know, uh, very, you know, to do traditional, if you want to get people on board with it, to do very traditional uh, advertising. Uh, but if they're not, you know, if they're, if a company is not interested in doing that, don't count on them. Do not rely upon that service by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, that's my thoughts on on Brocker. Uh, you know, what a shock! If they maybe if they just did some advertising, maybe they'd be on the top of the heap instead of Purse.io. Uh, so let's see, boy. Here, here's some interesting stuff. Uh, EU. Now this this goes back. This goes. I'm I'm going to be referencing, uh, boy, uh, an episode of Sovereign Tech from I don't know maybe a year ago now. Uh, but the EU, the European Union, are going, they're going after Google uh, for antitrust. And they are going after Google for, you know, monopolizing search. And they are also going after them for Android. Now, uh, this is reminiscent of, because a lot of people are comparing Google to Microsoft of the 90s now, and they're not doing it in a good way, Okay. Uh, because that's what happened with Microsoft is they were they were bundling in Internet Explorer and a whole bunch of people, you know, Mark Andreessen and, and some others were bitching, okay, saying that, oh, man, you know, Microsoft's killing competition, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're a monopoly. We got to go after them with antitrust laws. And the EU is now doing that to Google, you know, for search and for Android. 
Now, I talked about this because someone sent me a really, really kind email for important messages or important email at the time that asked me, you know, it, it literally just said, tell me a sad story. And so I told a sad story. And what the story was is that I think that Bill Gates was, you know, kind of anti-government in the 90s. And he was, and when he made the statement, and this is something he said, he said, I'm more, he's like, because Bill Clinton was getting awarded this, you know, thing for, for being, oh, what a great guy doing so much for everybody. What a powerful guy, blah, blah, blah. And Bill Gates said about Bill Clinton, said, Bill Clinton, I'm more powerful than Bill Clinton. You know, I'm the real Bill. And uh, I think that was true in the 90s. Okay. And so I think that the U.S. government broke him, like broke him down, not made him go broke. Obviously, he's still, you know, multi-billionaire. Okay. But broke him down. And, and so that, that's, that's, that's from episodes ago. You can hunt that one down if you want at SovereignTech.Ninja. Um, but, uh, you know, and so I, I think it's interesting, though, because this is when I talked about that story about Bill Gates, when I told that story, I said, it's, it's crazy that nobody's going after Google if Internet Explorer was the problem because the browser was bundled with the OS and thus you didn't have an option. If that was an issue, why isn't Google getting torn to pieces for Chrome OS? Now, I like the idea, the idea, keep in mind, of Chrome OS, okay? And I've, I've supported, you know, Chrome OS in the past, uh, admittedly, on this show, okay, long ago. But my point being is that, I mean, that is, it's not just the fact that you don't get to choose another browser. The browser is the fucking OS. I mean, that should be a huge red flag for the United States. Like, there should be apologies passed out to Microsoft today for the fact that, you know, that, 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 the U.S. isn't going after Google for antitrust. And please, I don't like antitrust laws. Make, make no mistake, I'm, I'm not a fan of this sort of thing. I'm not a fan of any kind of regulation, legislation, or anything like that. I'm just saying within the statist matrix, within that system, okay, there is massive contradictions occurring here in the tech realm, okay? The fact that Google wasn't already gotten after for antitrust is crazy. Now, as far as them, you know, antitrust and search, uh, I think whatever, that that's... That's all meaningless, and I mean, you can use DuckDuckGo anyway. There, it's not like there's no choice or something like that. The EU is, is insane for doing this. But I all, what I do think is interesting is that the EU is also going after Android. And what's interesting about this is because it does highlight, again, I don't agree with the EU doing this. I don't agree with the U.S. if the U.S. did it. Okay, I'm just saying that it's a contradiction. But what I think is interesting about the EU going after Google for Android is that it is highlighting the fact that Android is not the open system that it was anymore. And in fact, AOSP, which is the open source version of Android, um, is very much becoming incredibly different from Google's full-on Android, uh, even though they, you know, they're both kind of owned and there's no real reason why some code shouldn't be in the other other than the fact that Google wants to take total control, just like Apple does with iOS. So it really does highlight the fact that, that Google is in charge with Android as to where that wasn't always so. In fact, it's it's kind of a recent development over the past year, maybe two, uh, that this is something. And so, uh, you know, which reminds me, there was there was a story that bounced around this week, and it was kind of a big switch around, uh, because CyanogenMod, uh, the CEO of CyanogenMod, has come out and said that they are going to take Android away from Google, and they admit that Google has taken complete control of Android, and that a company cannot, like the appeal to, to developing for Android has gone away because Google is turning it into, you know, Google, Google only, as far as its services go. Uh, and, you know, he, there was a, a story this week that, 
Cyanogen mod, and we, we kind of talked about this, that this, this might happen since Microsoft had invested in Cyanogen mod, that Microsoft apps would get preloaded into Cyanogen mod. Now, that was claimed even by the Twit network that that was true. But within a couple hours, it all got switched around, and actually some, uh, some great listeners had mentioned it to me that it was going to happen. Um, you know, but, but the, the news switched around very quickly. CyanogenMod said, no, we're not preloading apps. Um, and also there was, you know, this is just a slight correction, uh, but apparently Microsoft never did that investment because there was like $100 million, or they were part of a $100 million seed or something like that, and they did not do that. Uh, so that's that's interesting. I, you know, I don't know what to make of that. Either way, you know, where the truth lies in all this, okay, uh, I think it will be true that CyanogenMod is making their own version of the Play Store, and I think Microsoft will be injecting their apps into that Play Store, okay? And, you know, as I've often said, the, the smartphone, in my opinion, is a lost cause. So I see, you know, I think that's fine and dandy to have, like, I think the OneDrive app, for what it is at the consumer level, not at a privacy or anonymity level, okay, for what it is, is probably the best, you know, the best thing going for, you know, for cloud storage and all that stuff, uh, especially on price. And so to have that, you know, to have that there as a possibility, I think is a good thing at a consumer level, not, not you know, not speaking from a strictly privacy, anonymity, you know, crypto level or anything. Uh, so anyway, so that, that's what I think is uh, is going on, you know, as far as that goes. So a lot of news there. Uh, I got one last thing I do want to mention because this is a bit of a, I don't want to say is necessarily a realization, but it is something of importance that I want to bring up. And that is, you know, Mortal Kombat X uh, came out this week. And I noticed that there... To, to download the game, even with its updates, because it had like a you know a couple bug fix updates that came out like a day later, this game is on the order of 40 gigabytes, maybe 50 gigabytes. Uh, Grand Theft Auto V also came out for PC. Both games getting you know really good reviews, uh, and I'm happy to hear it about Mortal Kombat X particularly. Um, but both of these games, I mean, essentially to install these two games that came out, these two you know AAA hot games that came out this week, to install those two games. You would have it would take up a hundred about a hundred gig on your hard drive. Now, first off, the interesting point in that is that a lot of your high-end gaming laptops only come with 128 gig uh, flash drives in them, and they're using flash drives for the obvious, uh, you know, speed improvement. Now, that's you know that's not neither here nor there. The interesting thing I think to bring up is that one of the issues that we have, or that, that we've talked about in the past, is like Verizon putting in this uh, the six-strike rule or whatever, or ISPs in general complaining about the, you know, just the, like they were going after people that were downloading hundreds of gigabytes a month and all this, uh, you, you know, the, the, the bandwidth problems and all these things. Um, you know, this is another case, again, where gaming, because we talked about this last week during the climax, where gaming is saving the world. Okay, if any ISP comes after anyone for downloading, you know, tens of gigs of stuff, uh, you know, or even hundreds of gigs of things, I mean, where how are they going to do that? Like, what case could possibly be made now? Because you're, I mean, just to download a new game, you know, a couple new games that come out one week out of the month, you're hashing out a hundred gig, at least. So stop worrying about 
you know, the, the companies, you know, the ISPs coming after you for heavy download uh, numbers. I mean, that's bullshit. And it also shows the bullshit of the ISPs complaining about Netflix. Holy hell, Netflix has got nothing on what a good Steam account's going to do to you. As far as down, you know, downloading data, I mean, damn. <laughs> and I think the same goes for uploads too. And, and this is a case where things like OneDrive, I mean, now that OneDrive is unlimited, okay? You know, it's completely unlimited the amount of gigabytes you can store. Uh, Amazon now also offers unlimited cloud space. Uh, I mean, people are just going to upload gigs upon gigs upon gigs. I already have of movies and all that stuff. Nothing important, of course, but, you know, you know, uh, you know my, 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 media collection is already up there. And so I, this whole thing that somehow ISPs are going to come after people for, you know, for heavy use. And, you know, even if it, it registers as somehow as a torrent or whatever, all that, I think that's all bullshit and done. That's nothing to worry about anymore. They're, you know, throttling, limiting, all that stuff. And then, you know, having, you know, them suing you and whatever, none of that, believe me, it's just not going to happen anymore, uh, in my opinion. If it did, it just... It'd be so. It'd be a field day in court for any lawyer to just say, "Are you kidding?" You know, look at what look at what the average ten year old has to do to be able to play. You know, the the newest hottest game. I mean, they they have to again. They have to download like fifty gigs or whatever. So and certainly. Uh, there's going to, you know, this is something that's happening on the console level, too. I mean, the consoles are downloading games now just as much as PCs are in a very real sense. So, you know, gaming alone is going to, we didn't need Google Fiber to push the, uh, to push ISPs forward. Gaming alone is going to make people say, look, you fucking get some better, you know, you, you give me, you know, 10 gigabit fiber or whatever in here or copper and, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dumping you, you know, this is, this is crazy. So, uh, that's, that's gaming is once again, just, just, this is proof that it's saving, uh, the world. So, and if you want to hear more of my thoughts on that, please do check out past episodes of Sovereign Tech, but let's get into our main story. So much to cover. And, uh, this week's story actually comes from Cointelegraph, which is a, a new site. I'm actually, I, I rather, rather enjoy quite a bit and, and visit often. So, and I visit it often because the writers are actually, a lot of them are very, very philosophically sound. Uh, a lot of them are anarchists. And in fact, this one is by an anarchist and a guy I've had the pleasure of, uh, of meeting and, and hanging out with at times. And that's a Juan S. Galt. So, and it's, are we owned by the NSA? Bitcoin experts discuss how to evade hardware hacking. So, and I think this, this is a, you know, and we'll touch on this. You might think this is something that belongs in HackSec, but we, we're going to touch on something similar during HackSec. So uh, we'll get to that then. But let's, let's read on uh, the story here. And it's security experts agree that Intel computing processors, among others, have likely been compromised by the NSA, giving them the power to key log your passphrases and generally access your computer's RAM and memory beyond the control of your operating system. So far, the experts say the Bitcoin community has not been targeted specifically, but we can protect our, but can we protect ourselves against possible hardware hacking? Uh, and this is titled Problem from Hell. Uh, in an interview with I.M. Satoshi, uh, Vinay Gupta, who we've actually talked about on the show in the past, a cryptographic application designer and Ethereum release coordinator argued that, quote, in the long run, Bitcoin is forcing us to confront the fact that in all probability, Intel processors have been compromised by the NSA, end quote. He referenced information leaked by Edward Snowden that continues to come out, uh, quote, eating away our faith in our hardware, end quote. 
the interview quickly rose to the top of the Bitcoin Reddit. Uh, Gupta is not alone. Michael Perklin, president of Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin Sultans, Inc., uh, told Cointelegraph, quote, we know for certain that the NSA has already breached uh, disk controllers and BIOS chips. I do not believe it's a stretch to speculate that they have already compromised processors, despite there being no evidence of it at this time. End quote. Now, uh, Golden Stallion cutting in here. Michael Perklin, I actually uh, had him. I did a cybersecurity panel uh, at a Bitcoin conference last year, and he was on there and just a really bright guy. So uh, you can take what he's saying, I think, with, with some degree of, uh, uh, you know, that, that it ha it's coming from an area of, of research. So moving on. Even the military is concerned about this vulnerability, which is a worst case, you know, which is a worst case scenario. Popular Science reported that, quote, during a cybersecurity panel at the Aspen Institute in 2011, Michael Hayden, a retired Air Force four-star general who headed both the CIA and NSA, was asked about hardware hacking, and his response was simple, quote, it's the problem from hell, end quote. The risk of hardware attacks is so dangerous to the American military that they have launched Trusted Foundry, a government program similar to how Tor begun in an attempt to gather control over the international supply chain of microprocessors and other computer hardware they use, hoping to prevent backdoors from reaching their helicopters or other electronic weapons. It is unknown whether the technology rising from these government efforts to protect against foreign hardware will be made available to the general public. Given the outstanding amount of financial resources the NSA has invested into spying on its own citizens and the world at large, it is unlikely we will see trusted computing anytime soon. So I want to, you know, I want to cut in on this. I want to talk about this for a second. Um, there are, it's interesting, you know, there's the famous case where Joe Biden said, stop using ZTE and high products because China's probably, you know, putting in back doors into the hardware or whatever. Um, it's interesting that uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, um, they, you know, they order like iPads. They use a lot of that, that common stuff. Um, but they actually completely, before they hand over an iPad or any other, you know, kind of, uh, you know, tech device to anyone in the IDF or even someone working with the IDF, um, they will... They, they take it apart and they do something with it. I'm not entirely sure what they do with it, okay? Uh, but but I, am, I am personally aware that they modify uh, the hardware itself. They take these things apart, okay? So it's not just a software deal. They take the hardware apart. As far as what they do with it, I don't know. So this is commonplace, not just the U.S. government, but a lot of different governments around the world seem to be aware of this. This is what China keeps complaining about, uh, where, you know, the, the U.S. is putting in, you know, this is why, why Apple's, uh, you know, really sucking China's dick so much is because China keeps complaining with just about any American company, you're putting in back doors, you know, into the hardware itself. And so it's an issue. Um, and of course, the military is concerned about that because if, if something, you know, gets turned off at the hardware level, holy shit, what the hell, you know, a plane's going to crash uh, or whatever else. But uh, let's let's read on here some more of the story. Uh, control over customers. Not paranoid enough? Well, it gets worse. This kind of access to your computer is not hypothetical. Intel, the American-based computer manufacturer, has been adding to their chipsets independent processors known as active management technology since at least 2008. This technology is sometimes explained as a means to facilitate technical support or enforce copyright through digital rights management, among other things, which given the deep root control it gives to Intel over customers' computers, it can do very well. 
The good news is, is that AMT is not completely hardware-based and does not rely and does rely on some firmware, a low-level software that can be modified, though it is designed to be outside the reach of your operating system. This foundation is what McAfee, the famously difficult to uninstall antivirus, used as its home turf. Of course, the problem is that of course, the problem is that privileged access to a vast amount of Intel's user base through AMT is a honeypot of galactic proportions, practically designed to be taken over by attackers, state-funded or otherwise. When asked about the risks of hardware hacks, Perklin warned, quote, the risk here is being able to read any and all information processed by that computer. This includes logging keystrokes, reading or copying files from hard drives, and transmitting them to command and control centers. And yes, stealing private keys for both encryption and cryptocurrencies, if those are available to the machine or to the cell phone. Uh, cutting in real quick, yeah, the, the cell phone, you, you know, again, this is the thing. When it has an ARM processor and it has a, you know, a, an LTE or 3G, anyway, a, 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 you know, a persistent connection that you just can't turn off or that you can't get away from, uh, like with a Wi-Fi network, you could technically get away from a Wi-Fi network, right? And maybe you could get away from a cell phone, but where the fuck are you going to have to go these days uh, to do that? You know, with the baseband firmware, which is what's being talked about here, you know, I mean, until that can get secured, and that ain't happening yet, uh, you know, it's very tough to say that, that a device is 100% secure. And so that's an interesting point uh, for Juan to bring up here. Uh, let, let's, let's read on uh, just a bit more here. According to the Free Software Foundation, AMT can be actively remoted, uh, rem activated remotely using Intel network adapters and can function while the computer is off as long as it is plugged in. According to the Free Software Foundation, here's some of what it can do. BIOS configuration and upgrade, power control, disk wipe, system reinstallation, console access, virtual networking, network computing, VNC. Uh, in fact, some of Intel's chipsets, most noticeably the Q35 that are infused with AMT technology, have been demonstrated to be vulnerable multiple times by its IT security researchers at Invisible Things Labs. Uh, Things Lab. This was this has led to a cat and mouse game with Intel that has been going on since 2008, casting doubts on how secure AMT can really be. In 2013, the same Q35 chipset was hacked by Patrick Stewen and Yuri Besteroff by, uh, of Security and Telecommunications, who showed how it could be used to capture RAM and memory and log keyboard and log uh, keyboard inputs. In other words, everything you do on your computer. And people, let's be clear: like your keys and a lot of this stuff all gets stored in the RAM, at least temporarily. So if you can capture what's on the RAM, uh, yeah, that sucks. Uh, reading on, at this point, it is important to clarify the concern is not only valid for Intel hardware. Popular Science has reported that similar vulnerabilities have been found on processors built in Hong Kong and other production lines overseas. Similarly, the NSA is not the only state-funded spy agency with an incentive to compromise hardware. The same goes for its European counterpart, Government Communications Headquarters, that's G G uh, GCHQ, and, and other well-resourced players. Last but not least... An executive order released earlier this month by U.S. President Barack Obama appears to legalize the confiscation of cryptocurrencies without prior notice to their owners, who have, quote, materially contributed to a significant threat to the national security, foreign policy, economic health, or financial stability of the United States, end quote. And the risk for Bitcoin in all this is one Redditor asked, have we been owned? Not yet. 
One thing the Bitcoin community does have going for it as a relatively small movement is security through obscurity. During an interview with Cointelegraph, Gupta, who is not speaking on behalf of Ethereum, expressed skepticism about Bitcoin users being at high risk, saying, quote, in almost all probability, this kind of technology would be used only for the most serious national security concerns. I'd speculate nuclear weapons, supportive industries, and direct superpower on superpower conflict. I can't imagine U.S. intelligence blowing their capabilities to do that kind of work by getting caught using compromised microprocessors against J-Random Hacker and his cryptocurrency hoard. It's just not that important, end quote. Michael Perklin agrees, saying, quote, if NSA, com NSA compromised microprocessors do exist, it will be so highly classified that they dare not risk exposing the program unless their, their gains outweigh the losses in secrecy by having the program exposed. This means there is very little likelihood that this covert technology will be used to target individuals like your readers just to get their private keys. Though as Gupta, and that's end quote, though as Gupta suggested during his interview with I am Satoshi, quote, all of this wealth is sitting in a system which is controlled, if they want to act, by the American secret services. So the question is, can we protect ourselves? When asked how Bitcoin users could protect their wealth against such attacks, Perkland explained, quote, the solutions I provide to my client have, clients have taken the risks of NSA's compromise of the CPU into account for the last two years. Good on you, Perklin. <laughs> uh, our CSDs, cold storage devices, are chosen randomly off the shelf of local retailers to minimize the risk of the hardware being modified in transit to me. They can't predict which store I enter or which laptop I choose. Once purchased, we remove a number of components and physically disable others to minimize the communications capabilities of the machine while maximizing security. Finally, a set of policies and procedures are drafted that are followed by our clients to ensure them that even if the NSA could be watching, there is very little, if any at all, chance that their keys would become compromised. Achieving complete security requires training and experience to ensure that many different pieces come together in harmony, just like a chain requires every single link, link to be equally strong. If there are weak policies or procedures, it doesn't matter how strong the hardware or software is. The chain will break just the same, end quote. Before I read on, I want to comment on that because I think that is, first off, write that shit down, okay? <laughs> because I think some of that is really good advice uh, as far as, you know, how to have some actual security, okay? Uh, the second point I want to bring up is that look look at all, like he says, there's, in short, many different pieces come together in harmony. Folks, there's, no, there's never going to be that, that quote-unquote silver bullet, as much as I hate to use that term, there's never going to be that silver bullet for privacy and, uh, you know, and anonymity in anything that you do and to have actual control of your digital resources. It doesn't exist, and it's not going to exist. And this is why I say so many times, this is why the Golden Stallion says so many times, stop trying to pitch Bitcoin, stop trying to pitch all this new technology, all this, you know, this stuff to create a new wonderful world where people can be free. Stop trying to pitch it to grandma. Stop trying to pitch it to people that don't care because they will be, as Michael Perkland said, the, you know, they'll be the weak link in the chain. The chain will break just the same. You're not going to make this stuff easier. It takes so much. 
you know, like this article is, is beautifully pointing out, and don't, you don't have to be like hyper, hyper paranoid, okay? I put in, you know, the Lieberboot X200, I talk about that, uh, you know, that's the link for that is permanently in the show notes for every episode, okay? Because that's from the Free Software Foundation, actually. It's been certified by the Free Software Foundation. It is a computer that does not have all this bullshit firmware backdoor stuff. In fact, they're even putting in that, that Proteon OS that will allow you to, you know, to boot in without even getting to your OS and all this. I mean, it's a great computer. You know, that solves a lot of what's being discussed here. And I don't think it gets mentioned, but that's okay. I'm here mentioning it to you. Again, link is in the appendix of the show notes for every episode, because that is the computer to have if you want to even get started with the idea of security on all this. But I think that Perkland's point needs to be, needs to hit home. This technology is not for everybody. It cannot ever be for everybody, because if it's for everybody, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. When things get to scale, we quote, we'll quote him again. We quote Steve Gibson all the time when he talked about the Sony Pictures hack. The Sony Pictures hack. Steve Gibson, greatest security researcher of all time. Guy who's wanted to get hired by the NSA and a bunch of others, but he said no. He said, if you want, you know, how would I secure the Sony Pictures? You can't. At that scale, at that size, someone's going to fuck up. You can't do it. But we keep forgetting that. I'm going to go on with just what's left of the story. Uh, there is also a small and growing movement to create open source hardware. Yes, this is like the Libreboot X200. One notable mention is USB Armory by the IT research company Inverse Path. CT uh, Cointelegraph also asked Gupta whether blockchains could bring any protection. His response was to suggest a kind of cloud computing. Quote, yes, absolutely. This is a little technical, but the bottom line is that the processor, which Ethereum runs on, uh, which, where the fuck is Ethereum? It's almost the end of April. Uh, you know, I still have to release Hypercronius, I know. Anyway, they took millions of dollars a year later. Uh, the Ethereum virtual machine has a level of security that a physical processor doesn't. It's being run thousands of times, and the results compared and published before conclusion is reached. Now, of course, if all of those simulations instances of the EVM are compromised in exactly the same way, perhaps this doesn't bias anything at all. But if we had a very diverse range of machines running the EVM, including, say, some very old hardware indeed, that might predate this kind of pervasive NSA push... Lieberboot X200, Stalin cutting in. Moving on, perhaps we could build a genuinely trusted computing resource for some tasks. This, however, is highly speculative. End quote. Note that these are just some possible solutions to this risk. Before we can reach a level of security at the heights we have been discussing, we must first recognize the dangers we face. As we continue to build a new society on top of information systems and cryptography, we need to come to terms with the fact that government programs that seek to know everything that flows through the Internet will, by definition, control our society if they succeed. Knowledge is power, and as the information age continues to grow into ubiquity, we must continue to defend our privacy because privacy is security. Kudos, Juan. That's right on. Finally, Gupta makes it clear that, quote, it's up to hardware manufacturers to convince us that they have not been subverted in the same way the NSA has been subverting Apple and Google. That's where the burden of proof lies. Please tell us how you evade how you evaded NSA intrusion when your peers in the software game are un, were unable to. And so I, you know, end quote, uh, great article, great write up, great points to bring up. Um, this is not like a, oh my God, we're all going to die, <laughs> you know, uh, kind of situation. There are things I think that people can do. Um, the idea that Gupta was bringing up, not that I'd want it from Ethereum, but the idea that you could create a software solution that bypasses all the hardware is a very interesting one. 
but at the hardware side is honestly the easier place to do it. It really is. It's just we have to have that guarantee from the NSA. I mean, because how did this, all this technology get sold off uh, to people in the first place? Well, it went like this. Uh, you had you know, IT professionals who had to deal with people that weren't so knowledgeable in the businesses that they were in. And they said, okay, we really need to, you know, we have, especially when it gets to larger companies, again, look, the problem is scale. Okay, when you get into companies that hire thousands and thousands of people, you can't hire, uh, you know, an IT guy for every person. And so what they did was, is, well, we'll create a wake on LAN, which means that as long as it's connected to the internal network, we can have total control of the computer right down to the fact that we can turn it off and turn it on. So that even when it doesn't have power, we have control. Okay, now what later happened is that that became such a popular technology with Wake on Land that they created wireless Wake on Land. And so this created even more control, but with more control that isn't the control of the actual end user, it was a loss of control for the end user and it gave control somewhere else. The control had to, you know, the, the power balance shifted. Okay, and so that, you know, all this technology came from what would seem to be uh, very good things. You know, if you're in, the, if you consider that environment, that kind of corporate environment, a good thing, then this is a very helpful thing. You don't have to have this massive IT department. You don't have to have the IT guys get on a Segway, you know, and, and, and dart over to this department to be able to fix this computer. They don't even have to get under the desk and whatever. Okay, so it would seem like a very good thing. But again, you take the control away from the end user and it ends up being given to someone else. And what happens when that someone else is a bad actor, is malicious, is the NSA? But I repeat myself. Uh, and, you know, these, these concerns aren't new. Uh, they're, they're not new at all. In fact, when I was younger, when I was a, a teenager, there, when the uh, Intel Pentium 3, we're talking the 90s, okay, the, the mid-90s, uh, you know, and late 90s, that when the Pentium 3 came out, uh, there was the concern that the, uh, so I guess that'd be the late 90s, there was the concern that the math coprocessor that Intel put in to that processor was sending data to Intel, okay? Like, in, in fact, it would even maybe store it in the cache or whatever, and it would send that, that data off to Intel whenever you were connected to the internet. People freaked out. I mean, they freaked the fuck out, <laughs> you, you know, that, that Intel was sending. I mean, it, it looked like when, when people studied the data, it just looked like garbled mathematical data. couldn't mean much of anything. Uh, but my point is, is that this is not a new idea. And when you consider that the NSA was we know now, you know, wanted to install the Clipper, what they called the Clipper chip, was a chip that would store and send off data to the NSA in various electronic devices in the early 90s. Suddenly you look at it with a different set of eyes and you go, you know what? Maybe that little touch of techno panic with the Pentium 3, with the math coprocessor, again, almost 20 years ago, uh, maybe that wasn't so far off. Maybe. So this isn't new stuff, uh, but it's interesting to consider, you know, and, and even, you know, even Gupta said, yeah, you were, we would have to use it on, you know, when he was talking about the software solution, even then at the hardware, we're going to have to run it off of something old because it's the only way we know that, that some of this stuff wasn't in there. But then I guess, you know, the, the ultra paranoid could say, well, what if it's, what if it was in there the whole time, like with the Pentium 3 and whatever? Well, maybe. 
But I don't think that's the grand takeaway from this story. You know, I don't, there's no need to get into, into a techno panic. I mean, one should always analyze their relationship with technology. And of course, I've talked about in the past, you can listen to past episodes of Sovereign Tech, please. I recommend you do that. They're all, in my opinion, they're all pretty timeless. None of them require uh, the modern day for them to make sense. Uh, you know, where we talk about how to mix in old school privacy and anonymity tricks in with the new. And this is how it goes. And now, you know, when you consider Ethereum or some of these other blockchains or you consider Bitcoin, whatever, everything you own, your money, your titles, which just goes to show why it's bullshit to have titles on the blockchain, okay, but all of that is there and if all of that can be taken away by a bad actor at the hardware level, holy shit, what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is serious. You want to do something about this, right? But that's also, you know, that's also why I think there is going to be this general, like, backlash. And I'm not the only person in tech journalism that thinks this, uh, that there will be a general backlash to having everything stored online uh, because, you know, just the security holes are just, I mean, it's too much. You know, and I think it's true. I think Juan made a great point. You know, the NSA, they're not going to trickle down their security solutions to the populace, to the consumer, uh, to, you know, to the quote-unquote citizen. Citizens don't exist. But... My point, and <laughs> uh, you know, that's just—it's not going to happen. Okay. So yeah, it's something you know, it's real, it's out there. You need to decide how you feel about that. Maybe you're not concerned about your privacy and anonymity. Okay, and if you're not good, then you've got nothing to worry about. But if you are, and I think Juan's point, privacy is security, and it very much is. Uh, I think that's a great point to bring up. And, you know, let, let's keep that in mind and then let's at least make sure the options exist. You know, with the Libreboot X200 I mentioned, they said, that company said, look, we don't think we can make, a, we could use a newer model because they're using an X200, which is from like 2008. Okay. They said, I don't think we could use a newer model because, you know, the security holes would just be too great. And it would seem that some of the better minds in the crypto space would, would agree. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. If you'll excuse me. Uh, you're not Natalia. Who are you? Oh, hello, Mr. Sovereign. Natalia is on another mission. I'm Elizabeth. I'm here to debrief you. I'd love for you to debrief me, but, uh, how did you get in my room? The bellboy let me in. Well, hooray for the bellboy. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories, I usually cover the stories that get sent in to me through the various channels uh, available. Of course, you can go to SovereignTech.Ninja, or you can go to ZomiaOfflineGames.com. I now have one hub where you can even go to darkandroid.info. I have one hub where, you know, all of my projects come together. And you can get in touch with me there. I don't even, like, in fact, there's a contact us tab at sovereigntech.ninja or zog.ninja or zomiaofflinegames.com or darkandroid.info that you don't even have to, you know, you can just fill it out. You don't have to give me your name. You don't have to give me your email address. You can just fill that out and send it to me and I'll get it. 
So I don't even think there's necessarily a point in me giving out an email address anymore since there's that contact us you know, tab there. I mean, it's as easy as it can get. Uh, you know, and of course, social media links are on the top of the page. And actually, I'm not going to be covering a story. I spent so much time on the last story and so much time talking about the random access. Um, and I don't want to make it a longer show. And I have a lot of great questions to get to uh, for, for important messages. So I'm just going to cut out Tech Roulette this week. But I do want to mention to you, okay, first off, as I mentioned before, Hypercronius is coming. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, and I also want to mention there was a, released a great special this week with uh, the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I. Uh, that's at SovereignTech.Ninja, or, you know, if you go to SovereignTech.com now, it still takes you to the SoundCloud page, and of course you can listen and comment there as well. Uh, and that was awesome. We It was really uncensored, the whole show, and I included, like, I, I ripped it from the video because that way there wasn't any of the, none of the music beds or whatever, because we just kept on talking. It didn't stop. Like, the conversation conversation never stopped. So it was totally raw and unedited. And it seems like people really enjoyed that. So, uh, so I let that go, but of course, you can follow the guys uh, from the Rebel Love Show that we were on, and you can listen to a more polished version of the episode, uh, you know, through them if you want to. So you can check that out. The other thing I want to mention is that I now have a push bullet. I'm still working on getting all separate RSS feeds uh, for everything because my Zog blog is where I blog about anything that tickles my fancy. Is also on SovereignTech.Ninja or ZomiaOfflineGames.com or Zog.Ninja. Um, but I want to mention that. You can use a push bullet, which is one of my favorite apps for Android. It's also for iOS. Uh, and I think it gets, I think it's even on like BlackBerry and some others. I think there's been some kind of ports that were done with it. But anyway, uh, and of course, it's also available as a client on Windows and in your web browser, you know, Chrome and, and Firefox. It's available across the board. Um, and push bullet will actually send you you know, like the latest updates. And you can follow specific channels if you want. Like if you only want news about Sovereign Tech, you can follow that push bullet. And it's all on the left-hand side of the page. It's right under the, the Bitcoin and Litecoin uh, donation uh, uh, widget there, which will you can use that too if you'd like to donate to the show. Got some great donations last week, and believe me, they went to great use <laughs> right away. Uh, and and I really appreciate those. I always do. Uh, but the, anyway, the, the donations are there for Bitcoin, and you can bring up a QR code through the widget and everything. It's all really nice. But underneath that is the push bullet. Uh, you know, for the various things that you want to follow. If you want to follow Dark Android, those developments, those are all coming. Uh, I will be doing blog posts starting next week. Uh, as well as other things, you know, for all, all across the website. Um, so lots to do there. And, you know, I, I mentioned on social media, and of course my social media links are across the top, and, and there's other ways to donate too. There's Patreon and all that, which please, you know, I know I talked, I, you know, I talked trash about Patreon last week, but, you know, you can use Patreon with me, and I, I'm not doing any kind of reward system, which was my problem with Patreon. It, you know, but you can, if you want to, you know, monthly donate to the show through Patreon. That is a possibility. You can just go to the Support Us tab there. Um, but, you know, something I mentioned was that I didn't realize, because I figure with any any of these new top-level domains that come out, um, you know, I figured the three, the two-letter and the three-letter domains just go like like they just sell instantaneously and so i found out that zog.ninja that zog z-o-g as in zomia offline games was available and so i bought it now i wish i knew that because i would have built the whole site around zog.ninja okay and you know so maybe in a year i'll, I'll switch things up a little bit but Probably the main address I'm going to be giving out to people for the show and for everything else and, you know, for Hypercronius and whatever will be Zog.Ninja to check out because that is really, really quick. Um, but anyway, yeah, just thought that was interesting. So I'll be back with some important messages. You're listening to Sovereign Tech. 
Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. Today we're talking about the impact of marijuana on sperm. Now we tend to think of sperm as being fast little swimmers, perhaps suffering from hyperactivity, but it isn't until hours after sperm are ejaculated into a woman's vagina and they finally have an egg in their crosshairs that they switch on the afterburners. Now if sperm starts swimming too fast, too soon, the chances of fertilization go way down. Now, you'd think that marijuana would be the last thing in the world that would speed anything up. But the main buzz-producing substances that are in marijuana, which are called cannabinoids, cause sperm to accelerate. Now, cannabinoids are naturally present in men's and women's bodies, even if they've never lit up a single joint. But they work in such a way that they cause the sperm to speed up only at the right time. If either partner is a serious pot smoker... The extra cannabinoids from the pot can cause the sperm to get manic and to swim out of control. If it's a guy who's smoking marijuana, his sperm might come out the end of his penis burning rubber, biologically speaking. And if it's a woman who's lighting up, the pot could permeate her vaginal fluids, giving sperm a contact high. Now, heavy pot smoking can decrease your chances of becoming pregnant by up to 50%. However, this doesn't mean you should use marijuana for birth control. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. I just received an encrypted message from Decentral with your next mission, and it looks like I'm coming along. Why, Elizabeth, I wouldn't have it any other way. You're clearly good at staying on top of things. It helps when one's partner is very skilled. No, no, we can have more fun later. What does the message say? Important Messages. It is time for Important Messages, where I cover emails and tweets and whatever else that gets sent to me. Uh, Again, just go to SovereignTech.Ninja, S-O-V-R-Y-N, of course, and you can, uh, you know, find everything uh, there, you know, ways to get in touch with me. There's a Contact Us tab, and and there's just BitMessage, a whole slew of ways to get in touch with the show. And, of course, there is the... Uh, just the form, the contact form that you can just very easily use and you don't have to give me any information and, and boom, there you go. Uh, unless you want me to reply to you, then it's probably a pretty good idea to at least give me your email. And of course, any message that gets sent to me, unless you tell me otherwise, I leave you anonymous other than perhaps a pronoun. Uh, that That's the only thing uh, that I really you know share. So a uh, lot of important messages to cover this week. I may not get to all of them. Uh, one of the ones that people were wanting me to get to was the country versus city living, my thoughts on that. Uh, and I, you know, I may get to that this week, but if not, we'll save it for next week. So um, the first one, this is actually an email and uh, f- uh, from a very uh, nice woman. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, hey, Brian, I was just listening to episode 119 and I have some questions. When I was in Berlin, I found a few hacker spaces and I was wondering if you know anything about them and where their funding comes from. The spaces were Seabase and uh, CCC, which is the Chaos Computer Club. Thanks a bu- Thanks a bunch. Um, so Seabase, I can't really, I don't really know a whole lot about Seabase, uh, as, as far as the hackerspace. Now, both of these places are really, really popular, really, uh, well-known. Uh, in fact, uh, uh Chaos Computer Club, they had their 30th anniversary uh, just this past year. Jacob Applebaum gave a uh, gave a great uh, keynote speech at it. Um, I have been to the CCC uh, multiple times, and I've even gone to, you know to their main event uh, a couple of times. And uh, they are, you know, the CCC is, you know, they're they're pretty well, you know, on board. It's one of the better 
of you know these hacker spaces and 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 even conventions and events that get held uh, and, they, and they act pretty fearless so and as far as i know their funding is pretty much entirely private cbase i don't really know uh, and in fact the fact that i don't really know makes me a little concerned but if someone does know of course you can get in touch with the show and let me know more about cbase i don't have any experience with it um, i pretty much spent all my time at chaos and uh, chaos is uh, just a you know a great, great group of people, uh, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, I, I don't recall of any time and I've kind of, I tried looking into it a little bit before I answered this question. I don't recall any time where, where chaos had, had taken, uh, any, you know, money from, from any ugly organization of any kind. Uh, but anyway, good, good people over, over a chaos, no doubt. And a great event to attend. If you ever want to attend an event, an event during the year, that's one of the ones uh, to, to hit up. So um, I can put the link in the uh, the appendix of the show notes so you can check out Seabase and, of course, uh, the Computer Chaos Club, uh, you know, at your leisure. And maybe you want to go to one of those events. Um, let's see. Another question. Does zero tasking help with sex? I actually got asked this via Telegram, uh, which that's another option to get in touch with me. I love Telegram. Yes, I'll say it again. I know the concerns that Steve Gibson and a bunch of, and, and Moxie and a bunch of other people uh, bring to mind about Telegram. I get it. Uh, you know, like because it's a new algorithm, people are concerned it's not really tried uh, and true. So, but uh, you know, actually, it was interesting. Uh, Mike uh, Muhlenberg, I think, or Matt. I'm sorry, not not Mike. Matt Muhlenberg. He was on uh, the Tim Ferriss show. And this is the guy that one of the co-founders of WordPress, which pretty much powers 20% of the internet. And speaking of the Free Software Foundation, uh, WordPress is one of those few uh, real successes, actually, that completely follows the guidelines of the Free Software Foundation. WordPress is a very, very good thing. Anyway, uh, Matt Muhlenberg was saying that, uh, you know, he, he was asked by Tim Ferriss, so what apps do you use for various things? He mentioned Slack, which I use. Uh, he mentioned P2. He mentioned some others. And he said, oh, for messaging, he says, I use Telegram. He says, I love it. He says, the encryption's good. Uh, and it's just, it's so wonderfully cross-platform and all that. So it was nice to hear Telegram uh, getting props from somebody who really appreciates the importance of open source, uh, among other things. Uh, so I thought that was cool. But anyway, this was about zero tasking. Last week, I talked about zero tasking um, during important messages, uh, which zero tasking is really just what I call meditation. But I use the term zero tasking to make sure people know there's no woo-woo, you know, involved. There's no no crazy science of any kind, you know, nothing of that nature. Um, and, you know, it, and you can listen back to last week's episode if you're curious uh, what that's all about. Um, so, but anyway, the question was, um, I'm in the middle of listening to the latest episode, random question, does, a, does zero tasking meditation uh, right before sexual activity, yield any quote-unquote enhancements, uh, and you know, I'll I'll say that I don't I don't know that it enhances anything necessarily. Like right after, um, I I can't say that that I've noticed that, but it does. You know, zero tasking or meditation in general does really give you an overall sense of awareness. It kind of puts you back in touch with your senses. Uh, as to you know what's going on uh, around you, and in that regard, I think that if you you know if you make it a point to zero task, your overall awareness throughout the day, you know especially you know months down the line uh, or even years down the line of consistent you know meditation, zero tasking, whatever, um, 
you know, it, it just, it raises the bar on your awareness, just like by default. It just happens in the background, you know, without you even necessarily realizing it. But of course, that's the point is that you want these things, you know, to, to happen, uh, you know, on their own, uh, you know, and, and you have greater control of your mental faculties and in this case of your senses. So with that in mind, uh, yeah, I, I think it does improve sex, you know, in the, in that regard. Um, I very much, I, you know, like, cause you just, you, you have this overall, you know, greater awareness of what's going on, greater awareness of your own body. Because remember the first part of zero tasking is getting your physical, you know, body under control and then working on your thoughts and, you know, and, and on your mentality. Okay. And, and kind of reining that in. So when you get control of your physical body, I mean, that, that just opens up all kinds of things. Okay. <laughs> uh, so even, even, you know, one thing, uh, that, I was never really good at, but I, well, what the hell? Anyway, <laughs> I wasn't really able to do this kind of in the past, but something I have been able to do as late is to come at, like, almost come on command, okay? As in, come at the same time as, you know, the person I'm having sex with. And so whether or not, you know, that's kind of me being anecdotal, whether or not that's a byproduct of zero tasking to where there's just overall greater control of your physicality, um... I'm not sure, you know, uh, your physicality and mentality, because obviously, you know, coming sex in general is as much mental as it is physical. I mean, really, it really is. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that's a part of that. So I can't say like 100% that that's true. Okay. You know, that it's true that zero tasking would help with your sexuality, but I, I feel anecdotally that it most certainly, uh, has, has made it better, which is, <laughs> Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say it's a little hard for me to believe that, that it could get any better, but yeah, sex, sex can can always get better, I guess. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, I hope that that answers uh, that question. Let's let's get on to uh, another one. What do you think about sports? And so I, I kind of cut these off. A lot of these, you know, love the show. Thank you so much. You know, and, and yeah, and I, I appreciate all that. But to be able to get in a lot of these questions, um, I, I really did want to, I want to pare a lot of this down. And so what do I think about uh, sports? Well, okay. So I, I actually, a lot of people don't know this about me, okay. Um, I, I've kind of ripped on sports in the past on Sovereign Tech and yeah, I, I don't like the kind of collectivism that comes around it and all of this. Um, but I certainly respect talent. I mean, physical talent is definitely something, you know, respect worthy. Uh, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I actually played uh, for years uh, when I was younger. I, I played uh, roller hockey. Now, this is people, European listeners of Sovereign Tech, inter, or, you know, global listeners of Sovereign Tech will know what I'm, will ha think of something completely different when I say the term roller hockey from what people in the colonies, i.e. America, uh, think of when I say roller hockey. Uh, roller hockey is an Olympic class sport. It is in the Olympics. The U.S. actually, even, you know, the colonies, the United States actually has a uh, an Olympic team and I've played and trained actually with those. I, I wasn't in the Olympics, but I know the people that were in the Olympics and I've played and trained with those people in roller hockey. Uh, I was a goalie at one point and uh, I was what they call a floor player. I played the floor. So, which are really the only two delineations because roller hockey kind of like positions can change up so fast. Um, but roller hockey 
is not in America, in, you know, in the colonies, I think when you think of roller hockey, you think of like inline skates, you know, you think of roller blades and people using regular ice hockey sticks. Um, the roller hockey in the Olympic sense and in the global sense is, is not, so it's completely different. It's done on quads, which are, you know, the real roller skates uh, that, uh, you know, where, where there's two wheels in front, two wheels in back. And it uses something that looks closer to a field hockey stick. Okay, uh, you know, and you wear shorts, you have a helmet, shin guards. Okay, you're not, you're nowhere near as uh, as guarded up as ice hockey players are. Uh, so you have a lot of freedom of movement. It makes it a very exciting sport. It, it is a team sport. Um, I played that. I have medals. I have medals for both roller skating itself, and I also have medals for uh, my time in roller hockey. I did, uh, you know, I went to national tournaments. The medals I have are recognized globally uh, by various organizations. Um, so, yeah, uh, so, you know, <laughs> as much as I, I may say, you know, I might rip on sports, uh, I have played them, and I am a, uh, you know, I'm an, a medal winner in these sports. And you can go on YouTube, you can look up roller hockey, and you can watch, you know, real roller hockey, and you can watch games, because it's still, it's like the third most popular sport in, in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, I mean, it's huge. It's just under soccer uh, in general. So, um, but th that's how it always is, you know, in the colonies. Everything's kind of different. Um, I used to be quite a baseball fan. Um, I suffer from Mets fanitis, which <laughs> which means I was a fan of the Mets, uh, and I, I like the Cleveland Indians too. I used to really enjoy baseball. Um, there, you know, football when I was younger, like I liked that just because everybody else was into it, and the Super Bowl is kind of this uh, you know cultural phenomenon or whatever. But uh, you know, after I got my mental faculties back, you know, growing up, uh, yeah, I mean, I pretty much stopped with with all sports except for maybe you know checking out baseball or whatever i used to watch boxing i used to watch all this stuff uh so i you know i know sports i know a lot about them i know all the you know the rules and i know a lot of statistics and a lot of the players from at least a decade ago or so uh you know if not even sooner um but in general you know i i, I mean i'm not going to knock people for playing sports but in general you know it's just it's not my bag it's not my thing uh certainly I mean, basketball is cool. You know, I, I can appreciate basketball. Um, but like like the NFL, like a lot of that, the big time contact stuff. I mean, like I like ice hockey too. Is actually a big fan. And I, I've played ice hockey here and there and not anywhere near at the uh, the level that I did with, um, with roller hockey. Uh, you know, so I can appreciate all these sports, um, but just kind of the collectivism of it that, that comes with the leagues and, and, and the teams and the regionalism and all that, uh, that. That's where I think sports become like, annoying and and an issue and like yeah it, it it can just be annoying for me so anyway and and like some of these things like nascar holy i mean I, that is technically a sport um how you could watch guys going round and round you know making the left turn for three hours blows my mind <laughs> so <laughs> uh so I'm, I'm not a sports fan i'm not going to begrudge people you know on it i'm not going to go down this huge i mean like things like ufc things like you know getting really brutal with people uh like that you know one one i think could make some interesting cases you know the moral cases maybe against that sort of thing if they wanted uh but you know again obviously on you know like with ufc uh it tried to get banned in the 90s remember that uh i you know i wouldn't want to ban anything of course you know so i'm not talking about anything along those lines um so but that but that that's it you know it, my thoughts on sports is that yeah i mean I, I like you know having fun physically uh playing frisbee i don't know doing all kinds of things you know so the word sport is really really broad uh and the question didn't get into specifics so if you want to know how i think about specific sports i try to kind of be broad in my answer here too uh you can of course, ask me uh, those, and, and I will um, 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll answer them when, when I, when I get the chance here on Sovereign Tech. So, uh, you know, I want to say real quick, uh, I hope that covers that. I want to say real quick, um, also, no, no, you know what? <laughs> if you ever want to go roller skating, <laughs> you let me know. <laughs> I, I, I still love roller skating. Um, in fact, people don't expect it because I'm like, I'm six foot one, you know, I weigh, uh, let's see, I'm in at about 215, 220 right now, trying to, trying to stock up, actually build up on it. Uh, with my workouts, but, uh, you know, people don't expect me to be like this guy that can do, you know, jumps and spins and all this, you know, skate sideways and backwards and all this wild shit, you know, with, on a, on a pair of uh, quad roller skates, but yeah, <laughs> I, I love it. Kind of get to, kind of get to pull the hustle with it, uh, you know, here and there, because people don't expect it. And then you just, you know, you come out and do it. And, uh, Stephanie and I went roller skating uh, a couple times and, and boy, that was, a <laughs> that was, she was like, what? <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I just want to say again, I want to reiterate, we're about halfway through the show. Uh, well, maybe more than halfway. I want to reiterate, thank you for dealing with the, uh, you know, I am on location. So, you know, I'm using a, a not so up to snuff microphone, but it's a very portable microphone to have. And so that's why I'm using it. So thank you for being patient with the, uh, you know, the audio quality on uh, on this episode. And thank you for your patience with everything that I do. You know, Zog.Ninja, ZomiOfflineGames.com, SovereignTech.Ninja, you know, that the main hub for everything I do, uh, you know, has been a work in progress and more features will continue to be added uh, all the time. And I will be doing regular blog posts, of course. And of course, if you have questions about those blog posts, you can also ask that and I will probably address them here. Uh, you know, maybe even sometimes I'll do readings of, of the blog posts because sometimes those blog posts I'm going to do on the Zog blog are writing down topics that I've talked about on Sovereign Tech because, for whatever reason, I don't know why this is, uh, for whatever reason, like if it, people just, so there's just some people, they just don't want to listen to a podcast. But if you make a point on a blog post, somehow it just gets, you know, it's like wildfire. You know, when there's a blog post, it seems to stick and people will share it and, and you know, and they'll, and they'll talk about it and whatever. I really, I've, I never, you know, yeah, there, there's some great listeners of this show that share the show, and I appreciate that. And I don't, it's not a requirement. I don't, you know, if you don't share the show, it's fine. I, I've talked about many times in past episodes why I think some people don't share it. Um, but because the show is kind of a guilty pleasure considering its uncensored nature at times. Um, but like, I really never see anybody share a podcast. I've just never seen it, not on social media, not anybody, you know, like on, on, you know, being on Facebook or Twitter or Google Plus or wherever, I never really see people sharing this stuff. I share podcasts at times. Like if there's an interesting uh, episode of, of Twit or the Eddie Trunk show or something like that, um, I'll share them, you know, but but I never, I never really see people doing that. So I think maybe getting these ideas out as a blog will perhaps give them a little more, uh, you know, give them a little more fire, get them, a little, get them out there a little bit more. Uh, so that that's what's going to be happening with that. Now let's see. We've got more questions. Uh, okay, here here's a great question uh, to to add. And this was because um, I've talked about the tyranny of reputation, my thoughts on ID and reputation systems and all that. And someone said, you know, do, do you believe in do do you think there shouldn't be any reputation? That somehow reputation is unethical of some kind. Uh, no, 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 no. In fact, I made a quote in my episode where I talked about tyranny of reputation. Um, I had said that there, you know, like there, there's an old saying that t that reputation is what separates, you know, humans from the animals. And I think that that's actually pretty accurate. I think that's true. Um, I do believe in reputation. The thing I don't believe in is in reputation being handled through a, first off, 
a system of gold stars, which, like I said, is very, very kindergarten of you. And I also, I also don't like the idea that reputation is something that could be um, affected through, you know, simply rewriting some code or whatever else, kind of similar to what we talked about in the first segment of, the, of this episode. Okay, uh, so, but I do believe in reputation. Now, reputation is something that is built up just normally socially, you know, as human beings. It's evolved in us, the idea of reputation, the idea of, you know, you know, do we trust someone, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is, is like that, that, that system works so well, you know, of just, you know, you, reputation gets built based upon person's various actions on, you know, by experiencing them and living near them and whatever else. Okay. Uh, or in just interacting with them in, you know, in somehow in real life, like there's so many, so many little evolutionary cues that we have developed mentally that we see that, you know, physical reactions, verbal reactions, whatever, that, that have just been developed over, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years uh, in all reality. Um, that, you know, I don't think, as I've said, I don't think that that can be put into code for one. And for two, uh, you know, why not use those? We've got them. Why not rely on those? You know, and, and maybe the idea of reputation, we talked about scale earlier. Again, maybe reputation doesn't scale. Maybe real reputation uh, to where a person can actually develop themselves and whatever else, because let's face it, you know, a person's reputation is, is in many ways their real currency. Okay. But if there's systems in place that, you know, that, that can allow for, uh, you know, forgery and whatever else in a person's reputation or whatever, uh, you know, that, that, that can become a problem. And so I'm saying if we're going to develop as, you know, really, really healthy human beings in every way, mentally, physically, um, you know, let's use the systems that allow for that, you know, and I think a lot of our built-in reputation systems are there. You know, we've got them, we've developed them, let's do it. And let's consider that maybe something like that just doesn't scale. Maybe things can't scale. You know, I keep quoting it, but it's so important that, you know, what would the best security researchers in the world do about the Sony Pictures hack? There's nothing they could do. There's no solution to that because of the size of it, the scope of it. You can't solve it. And, and so, you know, maybe some of these things, so I, I firmly believe in reputation. Maybe there will be some kind of digital implementation of, of reputation uh, that will work. But I can tell you this for certain, that, uh, you know, reviews and five stars, you know, and, and, and kindergarten gold stars and all that shit and ribbons and whatever else is crap. I mean, they're just, it's, it's, it's dumb on its face and it creates false incentives. Um, you know, so, uh, so that's, that's my thoughts, uh, you know, on, on, on reputation. So yes, I do definitely believe in reputation. I just don't, uh, I've yet to see the digital implementation from anybody, the most advanced in the world, anybody I have not seen, uh, I haven't seen it myself. So let's, uh, all right, let's, let's get into, I'll make this the last question. We'll have to do the city versus country living later. But, uh, but I think that this is, this is a pretty important question. It actually relates to what we were just talking about with reputation. Um, and the question was essentially, and I kind of hybridized these questions uh, because they they were it's kind of twofold. Some people asked one, and and then you know others asked the other. And the question is, do you believe, or not not do you believe, but what if a 
anarchist world or anarchist society, because I, I would debate that there's ever, again, bringing up scale, the Dunbar number, things like that, you know, maybe there will never be, uh, you know, an anarchist, an entirely anarchist world. Somewhere there's going to be government. There might be pockets of anarchy here and there, which is what I recommend people can build, intentional communities. I think that's a way to get freedom right now in your lifetime. Okay, and that's the whole point. The point of life is to be happy, right? But the question was, what if the existence of the what if an anarchist society is not as advanced or as uh, safe, perhaps, or as uh, healthy, you know, like like not as advanced as uh, as a state-run society, or and this is the second part, or a code-run society, as in like Ethereum, you know. Remember what Charles Hoskinson said, you know, about Ethereum? We are trying to re-engineer society. And so, you know, a lot of these ideas, uh, you know, are all about that. You know, where, where it's like BitNation and iNation, where they're trying to organize society through the code and to, quote-unquote, replace government, though I would argue that code could be just as tyrannical as the government. Of course, there's episodes of Sovereign to listen to uh, that talk about that. So the question is, is that what if the, by, you know, take your pick of the metrics, what if the better world is the one that's run by the state or the one that's run by the code? What if those worlds, because I speak against both, I'm an anarchist, I don't want tyranny in any form, I don't want tyranny of the code and I don't want tyranny of the gun, i.e. the state, okay? What if those, um, you know, what if those worlds, those, those societies run by those systems are actually better? You know, what then? Is anarchy such a laudable goal? And, you know, my, my answer to this is is very simple. Um, you know, like I said, the purpose in life, your purpose in life is to be happy. Happiness is the ultimate goal. And I think at the very core of happiness for human beings is choice, is options. Okay, you, you cannot, I don't think you can really have genuine intrinsic happiness without choice. And that's, I mean, freedom is just another word in, in many ways for, for choice, for options, for having those options and having the choice. Okay. And so those systems, the code, state, the state are anti-choice. They are against choice. They are about, you know, or they're against individual choice anyway. They may be about, you know, choice of the majority, Okay, but then that's the other thing, is there is no such thing as a collective brain. There's the individual mind, and that's all. So if, you know, we are individuals, and that's not an if, we are, since we're individuals, and if the goal in life, one's goal in life is to be happy, then you need to have choice. And whether a world... You know, whether, whether this, this, you know, this anarchist society or this anarchist world, if it doesn't have 5G, but you have choice, which one's better? The anarchist world. Just because it doesn't have all this, you know, high-ass technology or whatever, it doesn't mean that it's still not the more preferable, still not the more conducive to your happiness. Look, technology is a means, you know, it's just a means. It's a tool. It's a means to an end. It's not the end. It's a very important point to keep, you know, to keep in mind, because I hear a lot of people talking, especially the more high-minded in, in the crypto spaces, 
where, you know, they're talking about like a lot of this blockchain stuff and whatever as being the end. And it's not. It is just a tool. Happiness is the end. So, I mean, you know, I, I, that might, maybe you'll think that that answer is very simplistic, but I think it's a very simple affair. I mean, and even just on a moral standpoint, you know, the, the, somehow the justification of a monopoly on violence, which is what the state is, uh, you know, I mean, just from a moral standpoint, I, I, who could say that that's right? Who could say that that's okay? Well, I know there's some that would want to say that's okay, but who in the liberty movement would say that? Yeah, uh, you know, that, that's, that's really it. it. It doesn't, in the end, it actually doesn't matter if somehow that world, you know, like somehow a state-run world had better technology or even perhaps had better medical advances, all of these things. Um, first off, I don't think it's true. I don't think that you're ever, you could ever best, um, you know, an unregulated market system. It's not, you know, it's just not going to happen, okay? But, but second... You know, you take the risks. Freedom, you know, I mean, this is like one of the, you know, very old, you know, saying in the colonies, uh, I think it was Ben Franklin, who said that, you know, you either have, or, you know, a, a, a dangerous liberty is better than a safe tyranny. I've said that many times, but it's so true. It's so, so true. You know, we we, we can't, I mean, th- like, that's how people, that that's how the state thrives is on that fear that, oh, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. You know, but it, but that fear, and some fears are legitimate, you know, but that fear that that's thriving on is in a matter of removing choice from you, removing happiness uh, from you. And, you know, sp- speaking of that, I want to I want to kind of uh, touch on, on just kind of a wild thought I had, you know, because another another famous saying from that era of the colonies was, of course, um, Thomas Jefferson which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that's a beautiful thing. I agree with that 100%. You know, I'm not going rah-rah America here, but I think that's interesting. But a lot of people talk about, well, you know, a lot of libertarians want to say, well, that was originally based off of John Locke and his second treatise on government, where he says life, liberty, and, the, and uh, life, liberty, and property. Now, I can't help but wonder, because, you know, I think, you know, every generation kind of stands on the shoulders of giants, and we all build off of our ideas and, you know, get more advanced as as we think about these things. Um, You know, I wonder, because Thomas Jefferson definitely, you know, really appreciated the works of John Locke, and I wonder if, and I'm just tossing this out there, I wonder if why Jefferson decided to change property to the pursuit of happiness. What does that mean? Why did he not, why didn't he just add that on and keep the word property in there? That's something to think about. Maybe I'll talk about that in a future episode of Sovereign Tech. There might be something to that, but in the end, life is about the Hey, this is Michael Dean from the Freedom Fiends Radio Show. I've been working with computer programmer Derek Slopey to create Fiend Phone. I'm using Fiend Phone right now to talk with and record one of my co-hosts in real time. Take it, Davi. Hey, this is Davi Barker, and I'm a thousand miles away from Michael, but we sound like we're in the same room. We sure do, Davi. So, Davi, please tell the nice people more about FiendPhone. FiendPhone is free, open-source software that opens up a global world of possibilities for collaborative, high-quality remote voice media production, and I'm digging it. People can try the Windows beta version of FiendPhone right now at FiendPhone.com. But we're also raising money to vastly improve FiendPhone and vastly improve independent talk media worldwide. 
So go to fiendphone.com to help out. Who will build the audio roads? We will, with your help. That's fiendphone.com. F-E-E-N-P-H-O-N-E dot com. Foxtrot Echo Echo November Phone dot com. Fiendphone. I never knew remote audio could be this good. We're never going to make it out alive if those blockchain drones get off the ground. I can handle that. You just find us another ride. Get on! Nice moves. When did you learn that? On with you. No guns, no killing. Are the drones taken care of? They are now. Nothing works better than a quick hack. Let's get going. Hexec. It is time for Hexec, where I cover issues of security and talk about hackers. Uh, we talk about it all here on Hexec. And of course, hackers are heroes on Sovereign Tech. Black hat, white hat, gray hat, you name it. Those are labels made by the state. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to kind of talk about, uh, you know, a security issue during HackSec that was relative to the hardware issues we were talking about in the first segment. And so this dovetails nicely because I think this is an interesting little piece of technology. And what I'm reading from is, is PC Mag. Um, now, I want to make it clear. I know I've said in the past, you know, that maybe, and, and that's sort of what, what Gupta was getting at, that maybe software can just bypass all the hardware issues in itself. But again, as I also said, you know, as I said, Hardware is really the easiest place to make this happen. So, and I want to read about this again. This is from PCMag.com, and it's the Bitdefender box. Now, Bitdefender is a company that makes antivirus software, pretty decent antivirus software. It's not the one I, it's not my top pick, but it's 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 pretty good. So, you know, if you went with it, I don't blame you. Um, but let me, uh, l- let's read the story here, because they did a, a really good write-up on this. Bitdefender, ha- and it's the Bitdefender box, Okay, Bitdefender has made its mark in the security industry with award-winning antivirus software for Windows, Mac, and Android devices. That's why we were surprised when the company's researchers sat us down late last year and told us it was getting into hardware. The result is the Bitdefender box, which sells for $199 uh, and I think $99 per year after the first year. So this this hardware kind of has a a bit of a subscription service, it seems. Uh, A network device that promises to protect protect every single Wi-Fi connected device in your home. As the Internet of Things to be hacked, Stallion adding that in, looms on the horizon and our homes slowly fill with more and more smart devices, the box might just be the future of security. It's available for pre-order now and we'll be taking our time uh, putting the box through its paces for a full review, which is coming soon. The full review hasn't come yet, but anyway. The Bitdefender box costs $199 and comes with one free year of protection. After that, protection costs $99 a year for an unlimited number of devices. The box isn't cheap, but it actually works out to be quite a bargain. Bitdefender Total Security, uh, which costs $70 on its own a year, for example, covers only three computers for actually $89. And that doesn't include protection for mobile devices or Internet of Devices things either. Um, Internet of Things to be hacked. Once you really start thinking about how many things connect to your Wi-Fi network, the box quickly starts to look like a sweet deal. Uh, the hardware, extremely small and lightweight, the bit, the bit, 
Defender box measures 1.1 by 3.5 by 3.5 inches and weighs a mere 3.25 ounces. The white finish makes it look like a device that would come off of Apple's production line, and that comparison is definitely intentional. Bitdefender says the box is powered by a single-core 400 megahertz uh, MIPS microprocessor, 16 megabyte flash memory, and 64 megabyte DDR2 RAM. There are two uh, 10 by 100 Ethernet ports, a power port, and a reset button in the back. The wireless chipset supports 802.11b, g, and n. Uh, not exactly top-of-the-line hardware specs. <laughs> it's just enough for what it has to do. The LED on the front glows teal when, the, when operating normally, flashing teal when being configured, red if there is a problem, and white when it's performing an update. Now, I want to cut in real quick. Um, yeah, I wish it had wireless AC. I mean, certainly it's, you know, not not taking the charge as far as having a lot of abilities. Um, I don't even think it has a USB port, which would be really cool uh, for a printer, but then I guess the printer could connect wirelessly and it'd be fine. I just like to do all that, you know, at a, as, you know, right on the box generally. Um, but I love that LED idea. That's great to where red, if there's a problem, white, if it's performing an update, I think that's really cool. Uh, and then flashing teal, you know, when it's configured or whatever. So I like the idea of the lights. That that that's a that that's slick. Uh, let's read on with the setup here. Bitdefender told us that although the box can function as a standalone router, its real strength is augmenting an existing Wi-Fi network. That way you keep your router and you won't have to update the password information for all of your associated devices. Simply plug the box into your router via the included Ethernet cable, then plug the included USB cable and converter into any standard power outlet. The box requires very little power. We saw one connected to a portable rechargeable battery, so you can conceivably connect it directly to the USB port on your router or computer. Now that's cutting in again, stallion cutting in. That's cool. The fact that this could be a mobile, maybe a mesh networking solution, and it has like a security, you know, a bit of security in mind. Uh, but let's read on, because obviously there's a caveat to all of this, right? To set up the box, download either its associated Android or iOS app and create an account. If you already have uh, Myth, uh, my Bitdefender account, uh, you can just sign in with that account. Bitdefender box is a long list of supported routers. For those routers, the app will communicate through your Wi-Fi network and set up the box automatically. If your router isn't supported, you simply enter your router's control panel and switch off DHCP, blah, 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 blah. Uh, let's read on. Protecting everything. The box uses a tool similar to Bitdefender's super-fast cloud-based malware detection engine that powers its Android offering to protect every device connected to your Wi-Fi network. This includes friends to whom you've given your Wi-Fi password. Uh, if something uh, untoward happens regarding any of the connected devices, Bitdefender will block the threat and send you a message through the app. For some devices, Box can do more. The Box app can trigger OS updates, install patches, and even let you perform basic cleanup actions for computers. You can also use the Box app to install a local agent to provide on-device protection for associated Windows, Mac, and Android devices. Think of it as an antivirus light to keep an eye out against infected USB drives or other offline attacks. In our testing, however, we weren't able to trigger the installation of the local agent. Um, and there's more features too, but I want to read on. I'm going to skip ahead. A smooth box with rough edges. Few of us have few of us have fancy Internet of Things to be hacked devices, and few of us think we're living in smart homes as a result. 
but that discounts the plethora of connected devices that are already on your network. You may not have a smart fridge, but you probably have a router and a game system, and those things need protection. Not from hackers trying to burn your house down via your nest, but to keep all those connected devices from becoming spam-spewing drones or anonymous nodes in a botnet. The Bitdefender box is the first product we've seen that actually tries to protect everything, including the devices of visiting guests. It's a completely new paradigm for how antivirus is packaged, deployed, and priced. Talking with Bitdefender, they hinted that small network devices like Box and not downloadable software might be the future of antivirus. Given how much careful thought and work the company put into the super sleek design of the box, it's clear Bitdefender is betting on the future. Despite the polish and the paradigm shifting, however, the box isn't perfect. We had trouble defining the devices on our network and deploying the local protection. As much as we like the box app, we think a web portal would make managing the device much easier. Bitdefender also faces an uphill battle explaining the box to consumers who are probably only coming around to the idea of antivirus for their phones, let alone their home networks. Bitdefender impressed upon us that Box will grow and improve as more and more people use it. But given its potential, our expectations are high as we begin testing what might be the future of security. So I think that this is actually, in principle, keep in mind, in principle, I think this is a great idea. This is a really, really great idea. And it's so small, like this thing's like the size of my hand. You know, like it can fit in the palm of my hand. That's how small it is. And it's a full-on router. Uh, I would like it that way. I don't like the idea of having to add a bunch of, you know, bunch more hardware to things. Okay. Um, but this is kind of similar to the idea. This isn't like a necessarily a new idea. Like there was not, not Slingbox, or maybe it was called, oh, Slingshot, I think it was called, which was a box that you connected to your router that made all traffic go through Tor. Okay, so these kind of ideas, again, they, they aren't new. And there was that kind of that, that, uh, that sketchy Kickstarter that, that, or Indiegogo that went around about a, uh, you know, a privacy router as well that could run off of your, um, that you could even power off of your computer. Okay, so this is in line with that. I think this is the right direction to go. Now, you know, outside of the consumer level from a real privacy, you know, and anonymity aspect, not necessarily security per se, you know, depending who are you securing from, but from privacy and anonymity, this may fall prey to, well, you know, the, all the processors have already been cracked and all this stuff. It's not going to defend you from the NSA and whatever else. Sure. Fine. I wouldn't necessarily say that Bitdefender, anything Bitdefender does would do that. Uh, maybe it would, you know, maybe they wouldn't care. I'm, I'm not sure. Kaspersky and companies like that certainly don't mind taking the NSA, uh, you know, and, and, and other, you know, Alphabet Soup organizations task. Maybe Bitdefender wants to get into that business. I don't know. Okay, but this is a this is the great direction. And it's amazing to think about it because once you see it, it's just so clear as day that, yeah, you know, why do all this software stuff when just, you know, our connections themselves at the connect, you know, at the connection point at the last mile could be secured and it could secure everything that's connected to it right there. It's such an easy implementation. It's such a simple thing to do. Um, you know, why bother with a lot of the software stuff? And I think that that case can very easily and rightfully be made. I don't, you know, I don't think that's outlandish. Now, maybe the only answer, though, we're ever going to have because of the, you know, like the hardware cracks that we talked about early in the first segment of the show. Maybe because of that, software is the only answer. That's a possibility, okay, that the only way we're going to get any real privacy, anonymity, and security is through the software level, okay? 
but if people made these routers, if, if some company came out and made like a really good open source router, uh, you know, that had this Bitdefender's, uh, you know, philosophy, design philosophy in mind all the way around, other than, like I said, I, I mean, I guess the fact that it can be, it can run off of low power is probably why it doesn't have the USB port to where you can plug in a hard drive, you know, a network drive or a, or a printer, which of course, you know, you could just have them run on their own anyway, right? Um, maybe that's the reason why. So, I mean, so the their, their design philosophy all the way around, I'd love to see an open source hardware implementation of this. This is this is great. You know, maybe add in Tor functionality. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that I think you could add to this to make it even better. Um, but this is the right moves. This is the right direction. And yes, if I was just worried about, you know, consumer privacy and security, then I would I would definitely buy this box. And I would definitely, I mean, I already hash out uh, pretty good money for, I use my antivirus, uh, I actually use ESET. Um, but, you know, I already hash out that amount for ESET and I only get like three computers with that subscription anyway. So it's not like, I mean, yeah, I, I get it. Like, wouldn't it be great if you already hashed out 200 bucks that it was all said and done? Yeah, sure. Um, but the subscription model, you know, isn't that crazy. This case, you know, at a consumer level. So, uh, Bitdefender box, check it out. Maybe it's something you're interested in. I love the philosophy of it. Babylon 5 ended a great war and united a hundred alien races in peace. Danger didn't die. It just went underground with new heroes and new evils to carry the torch. We need to make sure they all understand we will not be intimidated. What is wrong with you people? We have to set him against himself. It's an entire new season of Babylon 5 with all new episodes. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Ah, oh, we made it. They're not kidding when they say you're the best, Mr. Sovereign. Oh, Elizabeth, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, really? Really? Why don't I show you? Right here? Out in the woods? On the bike? Elizabeth, I can rise to any, any occasion. Oh, Brian. The Climax. It is time for the climax, where I can talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. It could be a topic, it could be a movie, it could be a TV show, a book, a comic book, uh, an album, which, boy, the new Hailstorm. Holy shit. Talk, talk about a great album. Uh, every album by Hailstorm is great, but their latest is uh, just a masterpiece. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I can talk about anything. This is where I get to maybe even geek out a bit. And I imagine a lot of people who are listening to this to this episode in particular, and saying, Golden Stallion, Man of Tomorrow, Dr. Brian Sovereign, did you see the new Star Wars trailer? And boy, Heidi, did I see the new Star Wars trailer. I didn't get the pleasure. I, I have a really good friend who actually was at Celebration, uh, which is the yearly kind of, the annual Star Wars convention that happens. It's sort of held officially. And it was in Anaheim, California. He got to see it there, said it was just a, you know, the closest thing he ever had to a spiritual experience. I can certainly understand that. Um, I didn't get to attend, uh, but kudos to him for that. And, uh, but I listened or, you know, I watched it and, you know, my jaw was on the floor. Um, it, it was, it was amazing, you know, to, to see that trailer. And so I, I kind of want to give an update overall on, on Star Wars uh, in general, because other things came out, uh, you know, and, and just, 
you know, what's going on with it. Um, I've talked about Star Wars before. It really, you know, my, my, my go-to, my elevator pitch for Star Wars, uh, you know, my feeling on Star Wars is that if aliens, and please, I don't believe aliens have ever came to Earth, but if aliens ever came to Earth and they said, show us the greatest thing you've ever created, you know, I would hand them the Star Wars trilogy, you know, maybe the original trilogy or maybe the whole saga, and just say, here it is. <laughs> that's that's what I do. I've said that on Free Talk Live, on Nationalist Integrated Radio before. I mean, Star Wars is just, it is just the greatest culmination of human storytelling that that's ever, you know, ever been. Um, there, that's not to say there aren't things I like better. I mean, certainly I love Babylon 5. There's, there's a whole slew of things I love. Um, but, but Star Wars, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. So the trailer, and if you haven't seen it yet, that's not my problem. I'm not going to be held up by, by terrorists, you know, these people that don't believe in spoilers. Um, you know, the trailer was, was, there was some pretty awesome stuff in there. There was the Chrome storm, stormtrooper or the Chrome trooper is they're calling him. I don't know what that's about, but I love the fact that he's wearing a cape that looks intense. Uh, seeing what appears to be, it's pretty clear. I think that it's Luke Skywalker, um, you know, with his, his robotic hand touching R2D2. Uh, I thought that was, that was incredible. Uh, seeing, of course, then there's that you get to see the other uh, new droid, which is BB-8, which apparently isn't CGI. This thing is like this rolling ball, and it's largely not CGI. I thought that was pretty impressive. That A lot of people have been amazed by that news. Um, but, you know, seeing Luke Skywalker was amazing. Seeing what I, we think are the hands, at least, of Princess Leia, that was cool. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, seeing Han Solo and, and Chewbacca and them on the Millennium Falcon. And they're kind of reenacting the, the very famous picture from 77. Pretty much any time somebody grabs a, uh, you know, wants to show a shot from the original Star Wars film, A New Hope from 1977, they usually show the picture of, of Han Solo bent over with a gun in his hand, you know, with his blaster, and with Chewbacca with his bowcaster, uh, you know, aboard the Falcon. And so they pretty much reenacted that shot. And it's just, you know, Harrison Ford is Han Solo saying, Chewie, we're home. <laughs> and man, you know, if you don't scream when you see that, because it's just so, so nuts uh, to see Han Solo, you know, back in action, like really see him back in action. Uh, boy, that's, that's really something. Uh, so the trailer was amazing. There was other things in it too that were pretty cool. Uh, but seeing all that, you know, and hearing Luke Skywalker's lines, you know, my saying the force is strong in my family. And then he says, but there's a point where they, the line is actually a quote from Return of the Jedi, but there's a point where Luke Skywalker and it says, um, you have that power too. And he never said that in Return of the Jedi. So that's like a new line, even though it sounds like a much younger Luke Skywalker saying it. And so I don't know who he's referencing. I, I wouldn't be shocked if that line where he says you have that power too is actually just him kind of talking, breaking the fourth wall and just talking to everybody in the audience. But maybe... Maybe it's a it's a reference to um, you, you know to to another Skywalker you know a young a younger Skywalker like a Cade Skywalker or something from remember Legacy even though the the Star Wars canon is the expanded universe as we've known it for the past twenty years twenty five years almost thirty years is now you know pretty much dead uh, which I've already talked about that on Sovereign Tech before but. So I don't expect anything like that. Um, I was kind of hoping to see Amar Jade, maybe. Like, that's one character from the Expanded Universe that I'd love to see come in. Of course, Mara Jade ends up marrying Luke Skywalker in the Expanded Universe and a 
also she ends up dying from a disease, which was uh, you know pretty crazy. I mean, Luke Skywalker is probably my favorite character from from Star Wars. Uh, when you know, I really when in Return of the Jedi, when he takes his his lightsaber and he just you know he cuts off Darth Vader's hand notices what he did, you know, sees his own hand cut off and how he's becoming, you know, seemingly becoming Vader and the Emperor's just, you know, very happy about it, saying, give in to your anger or whatever. And when Luke Skywalker turns around, this is such a, this is such a powerful moment. When he turns around, you know, and he's in triple black, which is definitely an inspiration for me. And he takes his lightsaber and he just tosses it aside. You know, he closes it up and tosses it aside. He just says, no, I'll never join the dark side. I'm a Jedi like my father before me. I have goosebumps right now. (laughs) Just thinking about that scene. And that is that is so cool when he just says, no, I'm not giving into hate, not giving into violence, not giving into any of that. And he just tosses it aside. And I always thought that was uh, that was so, you know, so cool. Um, and you know, I'm not sure I got, oh yeah, yeah. Because Luke Skywalker being my favorite character. So being able to see him in the trailer was, was really great. Uh, so there was more this week though. There was the, the battle for the new game, uh, from electronic arts that being uh, battlefront, they're kind of rebooting that franchise, which is a very popular franchise in the early aughts. Um, I think that's great because one of the shames that, that we talked about on Sovereign Tech in the past was that Battlefront 3 never got made. The only thing is, is that, you know, th- this Battlefront, it really is, and it's actually being made by DICE, uh, who makes the Battlefield games for Electronic Arts, which is probably maybe their biggest franchise next to Need for Speed, if not bigger. It's probably bigger. Uh this really just looks like Battlefield with Star Wars skins. Now, that's not necessarily a terrible thing in the fact that Battlefield, like the last one I ever played was Battlefield 3. And for what it is, I'm not into that kind of game generally, but for what it is, I mean, it does it really, really well, despite all the you know bugs and glitches and all that, and what it takes to have 64 players on one map at the same time. Uh, what they showed off for Battlefront looked really, really good. Uh, we didn't get to see like a full-on mission or everything, and it is coming out in like six months, and I agree that kind of sucks. You should be able to see a full-on something uh, at that point. But, you know, it looked good. It looked good, and I'm excited for it. I'm looking forward, uh, you know, to seeing. Of course, unfortunately, it will only be available on the Origin platform. It will not be available on Steam or GOG. At least I can't imagine that it would be available uh, for those. Uh, but that looks pretty fantastic. But, you know, I want to add in, too, I mean, there's been, like, Star Wars Rebels, which was the kind of the CGI cartoon series that took the place of the Clone Wars. Uh, That that has finished now. Um, It's done its first season, and, of course, there's going to be a second, and I think they already signed up for a third season, too. It'll go on for as long as they want. It's Star Wars. Uh, I thought Star Wars Rebels was great. It really, like, the character of Sabine Wren was fantastic. Uh, They had Lando Calrissian in, like, in a later episode, I thought that was awesome. Uh, there's, I mean, it, it can only go up, in my opinion. Uh, it, it was actually, it was a pretty good show. The only problem I had with Rebels, um, well, there was a couple things. One of them was like a really technical issue, so I don't want to go into that. Like, it was just a you know, bullshit nitpick with the TIE Fighter. But the other was that I'm a little disturbed that the the main character uh, for for the show is a kid. Okay, and the kid eventually, you know, he's training to be a Jedi with Kanan, and eventually he gets a, you know, he gets to make his own lightsaber. 
and he makes this interesting, like he kind of puts like a blaster attachment on it, onto the handle. So it kind of works like a gun blade does on, uh, you know, like on Final Fantasy or whatever. But I'm a, I thought it was a little dumb that all that that blaster on his lightsaber can do is it can stun somebody. It's not a full on blaster. So, you know, the character is only like 13 or 14 years old and they still won't let him handle a full on blaster. Like, like, cause before he had the lightsaber, he just had, um, this like kind of a, a slingshot type thing that he could flip off of his wrist, which was cool. But again, it only stunned people. Now I, you know, I'm not interested in having young people killing other people by any means, but it's just kind of weird that like everybody else around him, is blasting people, including Sabine Wren, who's like 16 or 17. But, oh, no, he's just too young. We can't let him have a full-on gun. Which, to say nothing of the fact that uh, Anakin Skywalker in Episode One, you know, flew a Naboo Starfighter, an N1 Starfighter, and pretty much blew up an entire ship, killing, like, everybody on board. So <laughs> so I think it's, like, a major contradiction. Like, what, what are you possibly worrying about as far as messages you're sending out? But anyway, other than that sort of thing... Uh, Rebels is a great show. Um, I did read the book Tarkin, which is part of the new canon. I thought that was fantastic. It was a really, really good book, a really necessary book, because I always wanted to know more about Tarkin and to get that touched on. I thought that was good. Um, there was a book, uh, Heir to the Jedi, which I haven't read it yet, but apparently people have said it just wasn't enough. Like it was an all Luke Skywalker, all the time kind of book. And that would excite me. Like I said, you know, I'm a huge fan of Luke Skywalker. Um, but I guess it just, it was good, but it just wasn't like great. Like it, had, it really needed to be great and it didn't do it. Um, so I did read the Rebels book, A New Dawn. That was really good. So the bottom line I'm trying to bring across to you here is that since Disney took over Star Wars, things are actually looking really good. Better than they did, in all honesty, in the late 90s. Like there's just a lot going on. Things are being done right. Clearly with the Battlefront game, the rule that, because there was a rule that George Lucas made at one point saying that I'll never make another game that that exists within the original trilogy. That was something he said, like back in back in the early aughts. Uh, and so that that's been, you know, completely thrown out the door since Battlefront. You know, the, the footage we saw for it, it definitely had to deal with uh, the Rebel Alliance. Um, the other Battlefront games kind of did too. And then there was the, you know, the Rebel, uh, you know, that's something else Battlefront looked like. It looked like it was kind of a cross between the Rebel Assault uh, games or the Rogue Squadron games, not Rebel Assault, the Rogue Squadron games and, you know, and Battlefield. And and that's that's a nice mixture because the, the Rogue Squadron games, which the later two have only been playable on GameCube or GameCube emulators as of late, uh, were, were masterpieces. So I guess that rule kind of got thrown out at one point anyway, but it's really like it's really hitting to four that no, that rule doesn't exist anymore. So Disney's doing a good job. I you know, I guess we'll only know when the movie comes out, but quite frankly, I think that as far as episode seven goes, I mean, and they're bringing for the like the spin-off movies because they're gonna be making spin-off movies as well, and like Lawrence Kasdan's back, who I think he's the real genius behind one of the real geniuses, him and Alan Dean Foster behind Star Wars anyway. Um, you know, so they're bringing all the people back. And I think the reason that the prequel trilogy didn't sit well with everybody was the lack of Han Solo was the lack of the very human and very funny, like genuinely funny, not Jar Jar funny, like genuinely funny character. Um, and so with Han Solo there, I, I really can't see, and maybe I'll eat my words, but I don't see how this could suck. (laughs) I I mean, it just looks intense. 
you know, and, and they're doing everything that they've come out with so far. The comic book series, I've been keeping up with those regularly. Uh, the Princess Leia series is really good. Um, the, the Star Wars series is really good. The Darth Vader series that they're doing, they're doing a full-on Darth Vader comic book. That's fantastic. <laughs> like, there's like the this evil version of C-3PO and R2-D2, and they're hilarious. Like, you know, just picture C-3PO with, you know, just a total, you know, maniacal attitude. And, uh, and, and it's, it's amazing uh, reading to see. And it's very much Darth Vader versus the Emperor in those books. And, and so it's cool. It, it, it works. Um, and like Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars comic, he's doing some badass stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it's really great. And, and Star Wars has always lent itself to comic books better anyway. So anyway, it looks like Star Wars is in good hands. And it looks like the future of Star Wars is bright. I'm excited. I can't wait. The movie comes out in December. A whole slew of stuff is going on right now, and all of it is, if it's not great, it's at least pretty damn good. So anyway, please donate to the show uh, if you like what we're doing here. Of course, go to SovereignTech.Ninja and uh, go to the Support Us tab. Plenty of ways to donate. Thank you so much for everybody that already has. Carpe Lucem! I'll see you on the other side. And may the force be with you. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.